Now, dear ones, last time we were in the book of Matthew, we learned of Jesus dining with sinners and tax gatherers in the home that was in Matthew's home where he held that banquet. And now, as we turn to Matthew 9, 14 through 17, we're going to see John the Baptist's disciples ask Jesus why he and his own disciples do not fast. Now, what you're going to find out from Jesus' answer, I think, is very instructive. First, we're going to learn that it is inappropriate for Christ's disciples to fast because the reason for all joy was in their presence, namely the groom. Dear ones, the second thing we're going to learn is Jesus will explain in a very clever way that he did not come to simply bring an updated form of the Mosaic Covenant or Judaism 2.0, but he came to give us the glorious new covenant. Brothers and sisters, so many today who claim the name of Christ don't know what covenant they belong to or what mediator they serve. And so today you and I are going to be reminded why we are called in Scripture under the new covenant not to fast, but to celebrate a supper. Because under the new covenant, the tenor of our life is one of joy and great praise because we belong to Jesus Christ, the mediator of the eternal covenant. Now, I want to begin here in Matthew 9.14, and here we're going to see that Jesus' disciples don't share the same scruples religiously that the Pharisees do or even that of John the Baptist's disciples. We'll find out eventually why. Matthew 9.14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now notice here, John the Baptist's disciples are asking Jesus personally why he and his disciples don't fast. Now, with that question, the careful reader of Scripture, I think, should ask themselves two questions. The first is, was Jesus and the apostles obligated somehow to obey a fast under the old covenant? Was fasting under the old covenant something that was mandated? Well, no. The answer very succinctly is no. Notice on my bullet point, Yom Kippur was the only fast day commanded in the Old Testament. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16, start in verse 29. That's the only fast that was commanded under the old covenant. So what was going on in Jesus' day is you had pious Pharisees, pious Jews like the Pharisees who would say, well, we're going to fast more beyond what the scriptures were calling us to. And so they would fast every Monday and every Thursday. And so this explains why you see that self-righteous Pharisee in Luke 18. I think it's around verse 12. Remember, he's the one who says, well, I'm glad I'm not like the sinner, this tax gatherer. For after all, he says, I fast twice a week. That's one of the things he offered as his own righteousness. What did that mean? Well, that he meant he fasted on Monday and Thursday. So let's ask the second question. Was the lack of fasting then a moral lapse by Jesus and his disciples? No. No, they weren't obligated under the terms of the old covenant to oblige in fasting. Now, it is true that Jesus did fast during his temptation, during his earthly ministry, but he never fasted after that. Brothers and sisters, what we're going to see is Jesus came 
not to seek to jump through the hoops and hurdles of man-made religion or simply to bring a new set of rules and rituals or to establish Judaism 2.0, but he came to bring a new covenant. This new covenant will ease the burdens of rituals and religion, but it will deepen the demand to love God and neighbor from the heart. That's the glories of the new covenant that Christ came to bring. Now, as we continue in verse 15, Jesus gives a very interesting answer as to why he doesn't fast and the disciples don't either. And that is because they're part of the wedding party. Notice it says, And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Dear ones, first of all, in this text, I want you to notice, I'll pull up my pointer, notice in red this phrase, the attendants of the bridegroom. That literally in the Greek is the sons of the bridal party. And remember, in the New Testament, the phrase sons of often has to do with being characterized by. So, for example, in Mark 3.17, James and John are called the sons of thunder, meaning what? They're characterized by being boisterous. You see in uh, Luke 6.35, people that are referred to as the sons of the Most High, meaning those are people that are characterized by righteousness. Or how about in Ephesians 2.2, people are referred to as sons of disobedience. That would be the unbeliever. Okay? So the idea that you're a son of the bridal party means you are one who belongs. Whether you're a son or a daughter, that's the idea. Okay? So here, of course, he's referring to the disciples. Now, how important is this wedding party in the New Testament? Well, it is a primary metaphor of Jesus' redemptive work. Whether it's the first coming, whether it's the church age, or at the second coming, Jesus is the groom, the nymphos. The church is the bride, the nymphae. And of course, in any good wedding, you have what? You have the best man. According to John 3, 29, John the Baptist says he's the best man. And the idea then is one day Jesus is going to come back, even in our day, we'll talk about this later, and bring the bride to himself. And so notice here Jesus' answer as to why they don't fast. He says the attendants, again, sons of the bridal party, cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? Notice the rhetorical question demands the answer, of course not. Why? Because fasting and mourning, I'm talking about mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, not the type, the, the, the early part of the day. I'm talking about sadness because sadness and fasting is inappropriate if the reason for all joy is in your presence. The reason for all joy was in the presence of the wedding party, namely Jesus Christ, the greatest groom of all time. And the fact that the Pharisees did fast, the fact that the Pharisees continued fasting while the Messiah was on the scene of history was evidence that they didn't see in Christ the reason for messianic joy. They re remained in their fasting and in their religious scruples. Now, you might ask, well, wait... Isn't it true that John the Baptist's disciples fasted? Oh, yes. But they had a different reason for it. What did John the Baptist come to do? Didn't he come to preach repentance? And isn't there an inheritance sorrow for sin 
with repentance. Oh, yes, that's why John the Baptist came. He came to prepare the way straight for the Lord. And so there was sorrow in what he was calling Israel too, namely uh, repentance in which they were sorrowful for the rebellion under the Mosaic Covenant and in their personal lives. There should have been sorrow in the preaching of repentance. So what I'm claiming is there was a reason for John the Baptist's disciples fasting, but there was no reason for the Pharisees. It was just evidence they didn't believe that the Messiah... The reason for all joy was in their midst. Now, notice here, Jesus further says that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Okay, this is after his death, burial, and ascension. And he says, then they will fast. Now, I want you to notice here, Jesus is not commanding here fasting. What he's doing is he's prophesying what they will do. That, yes, the disciples will indeed fast. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. If it were prescriptive, you must do it. If it's descriptive, he's prophesying what they will do. And sure enough, through the book of Acts, you see the apostles that belong to Christ during difficulties, they do fast. You, under the new covenant, are free to fast, but you're not commanded and demanded that you would fast. That's what we see, I think, clearly taught in the scriptures. Now, I want you to understand that the new covenant life is one that's characterized not by mourning, that's not characterized by sadness, but it is characterized by great joy and having the forgiveness of sins and belonging to the wedding party where one day the groom is coming for us. And so that's why it's wholly inappropriate for the disciples to fast while Christ is with them. Now, dear ones, We see now Jesus in these next verses didn't come to simply give us an updated form of the Mosaic Covenant, but he came to bring us a new covenant. Notice Matthew 9, 16 through 17, Jesus goes on to say, he says, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise... The wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, I want you to see here that we have two metaphors that Jesus is using. Notice the first one is he's talking about you don't put a patch on an old garment. The second metaphor is you don't put new wine, notice verse 17, into old wineskins. What I want you to see in both metaphors or analogies is the idea of a lack of compatibility. A lack of compatibility between the old and the new. That's the idea. Let's take the first one. Why is it inappropriate to take a new patch and put it on an old garment? Well, the reason why is because once they are washed the new patch is going to shrink more than the surrounding older garment, and it's going to create an even greater tear. And so the original culture, as Jesus was speaking to, they would have understood readily what these metaphors or analogies meant. They would have understood there's an incompatibility between a new patch of clothing and the old garment. Now, what's the point that Jesus is driving us at? Well, he's driving us to the point where we see that adopting Phariseeism 
or Judaism 2.0 or an updated Mosaic covenant is not compatible with what he's bringing. He's going to bring the new covenant. Notice verse 17. What's the problem with putting new wine in old wineskins? They're incompatible. When the new wine is fermenting and therefore expanding, if it is in an old wineskin, the old wineskin has lost its elasticity. And therefore, you're going to have a rupture in both the wineskin, the old one, and the new wine. It's going to be lost. And so it is completely, therefore, incompatible to put the two together. In the same way, Jesus' adoption of Phariseeism, of Judaism, of the Mosaic law, of fasting, of man-made rules, all of that is incompatible with what he's bringing under the new covenant. Now, notice here, Jesus says the very thing in blue. He says, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins. There must be a compatibility for Christ's people and what he's doing. Brothers and sisters, the new covenant is not compatible with the old. It's not compatible. Sadly, many Christians today don't understand what covenant they belong to or what mediator they must submit to. They don't understand it. We're going to look at that today. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. Jesus didn't come to simply mend the old covenant and make it a little bit better. But he came to bring about the promises of the new covenant that we read about in Jeremiah chapter 31. A brand new covenant, a covenant in which we, by the power of the Spirit, would be enabled to believe and obey, not just mere ritual or religion, but from the heart. That's what the new covenant came to do. There is a fundamental incompatibility between the new and the old. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't come to give us an updated Mosaic law, but a brand new and eternal covenant. Now, with that, I have a couple of application points that I think flow logically from the text today. And that is, number one, we must know that Christ didn't come to give us an updated Judaism but a new and eternal covenant. Brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how important this is. We've had schisms within our own body years ago where people wanted to bring back the Mosaic Covenant. I'll mention that. They didn't, why? Because they didn't understand that we belong to a new covenant and a new mediator. It's very important. Number two, we should understand why Christ commands us to celebrate the supper and not to fast. Why are we celebrating the supper today and not a fast? Well, because the fast aren't as fun. (laughs) Eating's a lot more fun. But no, we're, we're commanded to have joy. The tenor of the new covenant community is not one of mourning. Why? Because you're part of the wedding party. Why should we be dour and sulking and fasting and making ourselves look as pitiful as possible when you and I belong to the great groom that's coming for the bride? That's the idea. That's why we do the supper and not fasting. So let's begin with number one. I want to help you understand when Jesus answered... John the Baptist questions as to why he and his disciples didn't fast, realize at that time they were talking about these things in Matthew's home. The old covenant was still in place. The new covenant was just coming in through the finished work of Christ, but his work had not yet been finished. The ultimate finishing of Christ's work is the sending of the Spirit 
which is the sine qua non, the essential ingredient without which you don't have the new covenant. That happens fully at Pentecost. And so there's a transition period. And the problem was the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel who should have known what the new covenant was to look like, they didn't understand. So let's remind ourselves, what did the Old Testament say about this new covenant? And what I want you to see is that it's new, that it's going to be different, not just a dressing up of the old one, but it's going to be radically different. Notice here, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 32. By the way, this was written about 570 years prior to Christ's first advent. Notice Jeremiah said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice verse 32. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now, the first thing I want you to notice, notice in blue where he says this new covenant is not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. Which covenant is he referring to that he made with the fathers? The Mosaic covenant. So right there, God is telling us that there's going to be a newness, something different about the new covenant. Therefore, there's going to be an incompatibility. All right, now, what is the primary difference between the old and the new. And as I'm going to unpack this, you're going to see a lot of differences. A lot of differences. But the primary difference has to do with the sending of the Spirit. Oh, yes, the Spirit was still at work under the Old Covenant. Don't make that mistake. But then under the Old Covenant, the Spirit would come upon Moses and the prophets. But under the New Covenant, God would proud His Spirit on all mankind, not meaning universally every human, but both Jew and Gentile, and not just for the leadership, but for the laity, the people, so that all would believe in the Messiah and then obey from the heart. That's the fundamental newness. In fact, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Let's look at this fact. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. By the way, keep your Bible handy. It will be a biblical workout. I promise you bigger biceps and forearms by the time this message is over. Make sure you have a protein drink afterwards. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Notice the fundamental difference. This is it. Now, there's many, but this is the fundamental one. Verse 33 says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. Again, I'm reading Jeremiah 31, 33. He says, Declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Notice under the new covenant, God is going to, by the Spirit, write the law in our heart. Under the old covenant, people tried to obey the terms of the Mosaic covenant, and they couldn't do it in and of themselves. This is going to be uniquely different. What's being referred to here in Jeremiah 31, 33 is a heart transplant. Remember, all the way back in the law in Deuteronomy 10, the Lord commanded his people to circumcise their heart. What does it mean to have a circumcised heart? It means one that can respond to God. Why would he have to command them to circumcise their heart if they were born into this world with the ability to already respond? Well, of course, they can't circumcise their heart. And so later in Deuteronomy 30, God says that he would do it for them. This is the fulfillment of that. 
The promise goes all the way back to the law. Now, I don't have time to read this, but turn, or I should say if you're a note taker, jot this down. Jot down Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 26. Again, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26. We don't have time to turn to that, but that's a parallel promise to what you see in Jeremiah 31. There, you see two things. One, God is going to sprinkle us clean. Number two, he's going to take out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. What does it mean first that he's going to sprinkle clean water on us that we see in Ezekiel 36, 25? That's a reference to the work of the Spirit. I believe the book of Joel, the prophet Joel, I believe, and I'm in the minority, I I realize, but I believe he prophesied in the ninth century. And I give a lot of reasons when I, when I taught that book, but he prophesied about the two coming, uh, the Assyrian army and the Babylonian army, so he had to be in the 800s B.C. Why is that important? What did Joel prophesy in Joel 2.31? That God would what? Pour out the Spirit. So the idea that the Spirit would be poured out, it would be like water. And so here, Jeremiah, hundreds of years later, and Ezekiel, hundreds of years later, is picking up on this idea. And so that's why Ezekiel 36.25 says he's going to sprinkle us clean. The Holy Spirit is going to regenerate us, taking dead sinners and making us alive. The image of that is the water. It's a metaphor of what the Spirit does. And in fact, he says he would put a new spirit in us. Now, what does it mean to take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh? We as New Covenant Christians rightly associate the flesh with sin, but that's not Ezekiel 36, point. That's not Ezekiel's point. The heart of stone is one that cannot respond to God. The heart of flesh is one that can. So the promise in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26 is identical to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, that God would take dead, unregenerate hearts and enable them to believe by the power of the Spirit. This is exactly why in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who's a teacher of the law, who should have known these things, he asks, how can a man enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says you have to be born literally from above, born again. Nicodemus, being a little dense like all of us humans, says, how can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Jesus says, you don't understand. You're a teacher of the law and you don't understand these things? You're a teacher who should know Jeremiah 31, who should know Joel 2.31, who should know Ezekiel 36, and you don't know what I'm talking about? That's what Jesus is saying to him. And in John 3.5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water in spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus referring to? Ezekiel 36.25-26. He's talking about regeneration by the spirit. And proof of that is just... Three verses later, he starts talking about the Spirit's work is like what? The wind. The wind. How many in here can control the wind? I can't either. You can't control the wind. And so here, if the, if the Roman Catholic Church is right, if they're right in their interpretation, John 3 is about what? It's about baptism. Well, you can control that. If baptism is what Jesus is referring to, we could put a baptismal font right here and we could save people person after person after person after we dunk them. That's what the Roman Catholic Church believes. Ex opere operato, by the act done, baptism saves. Jesus is talking about something you can't control, which is a what? The work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is the essential difference between the old and the new. 
And for those who don't see these differences, they're trying to put new wine and old wineskins. That's the issue. Now, because there's a new covenant, you should expect a new mediator. And that's exactly what we have. Recall that Moses had prophesied about his own replacement. In fact, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18.15. Please turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18.15. I know many of you are familiar with this text, but let's read it again. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses here is prophesying of his own replacement. Notice Moses says, The Lord your God, this is Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Two points from this text I want to make. Number one, notice Moses says, God will raise up a prophet like me. Remember, Moses, yes, he's a prophet, but he's also a mediator of the old covenant. And therefore, Moses is unique in that regard. I think Moses is not just saying, yes, God is going to have another prophet on the scene. But when he says, like me, this prophet is also going to be the mediator of this new covenant. Now, notice at the end, you see the key phrase where Moses says, listen to him. Does everyone see that? Bob has pointed this out many times. I've done this many times. But for those of you who may be new, maybe there's some who have forgotten. Listen to him is the words in the, that the Father uses to testify that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Where do we see it? We see it on the Mount of Transfiguration, for one example. Okay, so remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we'll come to that in Matthew 17, Jesus goes up on the mountain. He's got Peter, James, and John. Why three apostles? Because every fact will be established by two or three witnesses. So if you recall, the transfiguration of Christ is a foreshadowing of the parousia, the glories that will be Christ at his coming. So if you recall, Jesus is transfigured before them, but also on the mountain, there was Moses and Elijah. Why? Because you, now you have a witness from the law and the prophets. Again, every fact is going to be established by two or three witnesses. So you recall Peter, as he often does, speaks before thinking. He's a little boisterous himself. He'd fit in well with the sons of thunder, their friends. And so recall, Peter says, hey, you know what we should do? We should build a tabernacle, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And the text literally says he doesn't know what he's talking about. And then in the next verse, we pick it up, Matthew 17, 5. It says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. This is the very glory of God. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now, what is this a blending of as the Father speaks? It's a blending of Psalm 2-7. The Messiah is the one who rules and reigns on earth. And Deuteronomy 18-15. Deuteronomy 18-15. There's how we know Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that Moses made. And so if, in fact, Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant, as Moses had foretold, then let's ask ourselves, why don't Christians listen to him? Why don't people listen to him? John the Apostle claims that we're not bound. Excuse me, Jesus' apostles claim that we're not bound by Sabbath rest on a Saturday. 
How do we know that? Well, Jesus' apostle Paul says in Romans 14, 5, one man views one day above another, another man views each day alike, each must be convinced in his own mind. We have freedom. This is why Paul says in Colossians 2.16, we'll be turning to that, let no one judge you with respect to new moon festivals or Sabbath days. If we were still bound by old covenant Sabbath, they could not have said that. Jesus' apostles set us free. Jesus declared all foods clean, Mark 7.19. If you want to have bacon, you have bacon. If you don't want to have bacon, you don't have to have bacon. You don't have to. But you're free. Why are Christians saying, well, no, you're really not free? There are some today who say that. Are they following Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant? Jesus' apostles say that we've been set free from the Mosaic law. Many Christians today say, no, we're not. And what I'm claiming is the people who say, no, we're still bound to at least some parts of the Mosaic law. They are the ones that are trying to take new wine and put it in old wineskins. And what they're heading for is absolutely a disaster. Paul rebukes those who do so in Galatians. He says, if you want to keep one part of the law, then you try to keep the whole thing. And if you try to keep any part of it for your justification, you've fallen from grace. You've departed from the very doctrines that saved you. That you who began by the Spirit are now trying to be perfected by the flesh. That's the serious rebuke we see. And so, dear ones, those who try to claim that we're still under the Mosaic law, they're rejecting the foundation. What's the foundation of the church? Notice it talks about the church, Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's the new foundation. Bob DeWay was talking about this today in Sunday school, that you and I have to do binding and loosing. We're morally bound to do this. We're morally loosed or free to do this. Who gives us the terms for binding and loosing? Christ and his apostles and prophets. By the way, the prophets here is not of the Old Testament. Don't make that error. This would be a New Testament prophet. If it was an Old Testament prophet, it would be thrown from prior to the apostles. But it's a New Testament apostles and prophets. So what would be a prophet? Mark. Mark was not an apostle. He was under apostolic authority, Peter's authority. Luke. Luke was a prophet who gives us the very words of God. He was under Pauline authority. That's who these prophets were. And so now we have a new foundation for what's moral and immoral. And it's not the Mosaic Covenant. Notice how many Christians build cities of refuge, build one of those lately. You don't have to. Why? Because you have a new foundation. You have a new lawgiver. You have a new covenant. That's the idea. So what I want to show you is since we have a new foundation, the apostles of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, we should expect to be under the law of Christ, not under the law of Moses. And that's exactly what Paul the Apostle teaches. Let's look at what he says. Bob DeWay will be coming to this very soon, and I know he'll be able to get into greater detail than I can. But remember, in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 21, this is that magnificent section where Paul says that he became all things to all people so that by all possible means some may be saved. But I want you to see a powerful implication of what he says. He says, to the Jews... I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law. By the way, that's still the Jews. As under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. 
to those who are without law as without law. In other words, he became as one who was without law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Now, I know that's a pretty big word salad as we read that, but let's take it apart a little bit. Let's look in the red. When Paul says that he himself was not under the law, what laws are referring to? The, mini, the Minnesota uh, penal statutes or the driving code that we have? No. How about the Roman law? No, he's talking about the Mosaic law. He himself was not under the Mosaic law. He's not under it. Now, from that, many false teachers, those who are into Judaizing, they will claim that Paul is an antinomian. Anti is against nomos the law, meaning he's against the law. He is not. It's just what law is he under? That's the question. Notice in verse 21, he says he became to the Gentile as one who was without the law. That is the law of Moses. But notice he says, though not being without the law of God. So Paul isn't lawless, so says Paul. What law is he under? He's under the law of Christ. He went from one covenant to the other. He went from the old mediator Moses to the new mediator Jesus. He didn't try to take the new wine and put it in old wineskins. Brothers and sisters, what about us? What about us? Now, I want to help you understand what the New Testament writers did with the Mosaic Covenant. And there's some help that I had received some years ago from a couple of scholars that write the, the Pillar New Testament Commentary Series, a man named Siampa and Rosner. And they came up with these categories, and I think they're biblical, and so I want to share them with you. What do our New Testament writers, the foundation of our faith, the apostles, what do they do with the Mosaic Covenant? They do three things, and they all begin with R. So if you're a note-taker, you want to jot these down. The first R is they rejected the Mosaic law as a means of justification. The first thing the apostles did is they rejected the Mosaic law as a means of justification. Where do we see that? Well, turn your Bibles to Romans 3, 19 through 20. Romans 3, 19 through 20. Please turn your Bibles there. Again, a biblical workout today. Plenty of forearm work. Romans 3, 19 through 20. Now, I'm going to read verse 19 first, Romans 3, 19, and I'll pause. Notice in Romans 3, 19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Stop there. Who was under the law? The Jews. What law was it? The Mosaic law. But notice the purpose statement or the result clause is so that Every mouth may be closed and all the world may be, become accountable to God. Stop there. How is it that the law of Moses that the Jews were bound to could shut the mouth and make every single person, Jew and Gentile, in the whole world accountable? There is an implied greater to lesser argument in Paul's reasoning. What Paul is reasoning is if the greater Jews couldn't earn salvation through the law, the lesser Gentile can't. What do I mean by the greater Jew? I'm not saying the Jews are better human beings than Gentiles. They're born sinners like we are. What I'm claiming is that Paul is teaching that because they had the promises, the patriarchs, the covenants, in fact, in Romans 3, he said they had the very oracles of God. 
They had an advantage in every way. They had the very scriptures, the covenants, the patriarchs, the promises. And if they couldn't earn salvation through obedience to a God-given law that God actually gave at Sinai, how much less is the lesser Gentile who's far off going to be able to earn salvation through lesser man-made law? That's the argument. And so if the greater Jew couldn't do it with the greatest law ever given to that point in time, then no Gentile is going to fare any better. Every one of us is accountable and therefore declared unrighteous by law-keeping. Verse 20, notice what he says in verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What was the purpose of the Mosaic law? To show us our sin. It's not to justify you. The New Testament apostles reject, are, they reject the Mosaic covenant as a means of justification. Second thing they did, it starts with R. They replaced the Mosaic covenant in its entirety, not bits and pieces, in its entirety with the new covenant. They replaced the Mosaic covenant in its entirety with the new covenant. That's exactly what Paul is saying right here. He's not under the law of Moses, but he is what? Under the law of Christ. He went from the old covenant to the new, the old mediator to the new. That's what he did. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. Bob was talking about a passage just prior to this today in Sunday school. Very important. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. Please turn your Bibles there. Again, this is going to be a biblical workout. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. This is a passage that's essential for the Christian to understand the relationship between the new and the old, the new covenant and the old covenant. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 9. Notice Paul here is talking about the law of Moses. Verse 8, he says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Notice verse 9, he says, Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners. And he goes on and on talking about various sins. Okay, now notice here in verse 8. Notice, let's take it part by part. Paul says, but we know that the law is good. What law is he referring to? He's talking about the law of Moses. Absolutely. How do we know that for sure? Exegetically, one verse earlier, verse 7, he talks about false teachers who wanted to be teachers of the law. Well, what kind of law were they wanting to teach? Well, it wasn't constitutional law or Roman law. It was the law of Moses. And so notice Paul affirms that the law is good, just as he does in Romans 7, that the law is holy, righteous, and good. But notice he qualifies it. He says, if one uses it lawfully. And that's a play on words where Paul is talking about the law, and it's good if you use it lawfully. What he means by that is if you use it correctly. So now in verse 9, he explains how you correctly use the law and by inference how you would incorrectly use it. Notice he says, verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. Stop there. The law of Moses is not for the righteous person. How under the new covenant, and by the way, under the old as well, how could you be made righteous? It's through faith alone. He's referring to believers. Wasn't Abraham credited as being righteous when he believed Genesis 15, 6? Absolutely. So he's talking about believers. Notice he's saying the law of Moses is not for a righteous person. But, notice, 
Right after that, who is it for? It's for the lawless, the rebellious, the ungodly, sinners, for the unholy, profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murders. Who is he describing? He's describing the deeds that characterize the unregenerate. That's what he's referring to. The Mosaic law is not for the believer. It's for the unbeliever. Why? Because Romans 3.20 said it leads to the knowledge of sin. All right? Why is this so important? Some years ago, we had a contingent that rose up in our church, and the contingent was mad at Bob and myself because we weren't teaching, and they're, they're claiming that we weren't teaching the Mosaic Law. And the idea that this contingent of people had was they believed in John Calvin's writings that John Calvin taught what's called the third use of the law, that the Mosaic Law can sanctify the Christian it can make you more holy if you just pound on people with the rules and the regulations. That is not biblical, and Paul is telling us that. It's not biblical. And so as Bob and I pushed back using these scriptures that we're looking at today, Bob and I were doing this Critical Issues Commentary podcast that he does, and we end up getting a shirt in the mail from a woman who listened and heard and believed what Bob and I were saying. And on the shirt, it seems like on the front is a little blasphemous, but it's not. You've got to read the back. On the front of the shirt, it says, I was not justified by Jesus. Well, that's not an easy shirt to wear outside if you're a pastor because you, don't, you want people to know they're justified by Jesus. But wait till you get to the back of the shirt. The front of the shirt says, I was not justified by Jesus. You turn around, it said, in order to be sanctified by Moses. That was a saying that Bob DeWay had that summarized the whole issue. It's exactly right. You and I were not justified by Jesus in order to be sanctified by Moses. If you, if you go back to Moses, you're taking the new wine and you're putting it in old wineskins. That's how inappropriate it is. Brothers and sisters, what covenant do you belong to? Where do you and I fit in? We're under the new covenant. Now, I've hit two R's already. What did the New Testament writers do with the Old Covenant? They rejected it as a means of justification. They replaced it wholly with the New Covenant. Third thing they did is they reappropriated it as Scripture. It's no longer a binding legal code. You don't have to do the cities of refuge. You don't have to let your farmland remain fallow every seven years. You don't have to do circumcision, food laws, Sabbath keeping. All of that's now found in Christ. That's the idea. So, yes, the New Testament writers, they did three things. They rejected the Mosaic Covenant as a means of justification. They replaced it entirely as a binding legal code with the New Covenant that is binding. And they reappropriate the Old Testament as Scripture. So where do you find out that salvation's always been by faith alone? You find it in the law. The Torah, the law is Scripture. Genesis 15, 6. Didn't Paul say to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 15, that Timothy was knowing the sacred scriptures from his youth and therefore was wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus? What scriptures was Paul talking about in 2 Timothy 3, 15? The Old Testament. The Old Testament will always be scripture, but it will never be the binding legal code for the people of God. Okay, so today you and I have to realize that because we're under the new covenant, we are no longer called to fasting and things like that. But you and I are called to dinner. And so that's why we see 
the blessed promise that you and I are to partake of the supper. And in fact, we are commanded to partake of the supper and not to fast. That's what we're going to be celebrating today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. Notice Paul says regarding the supper, he says, In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Notice, dear brothers and sisters, you and I are not commanded to be partakers of a fast, but of the supper. Notice in blue, when Jesus takes the cup of the new covenant, it's in his blood. Remember, there were four cups associated with the Passover. You can read about those four cups. Actually, they come right from Exodus chapter 6. Jesus took the third cup and he finished there. He didn't have the fourth cup. The third cup was the cup of redemption. And he's saying that this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. What I want you to realize is that any time a covenant is made, there is a shedding of blood. Remember, go back to Genesis chapter 15. Did God not make a covenant with Abraham? The term in Hebrew is karaf bereath. They literally cut a covenant. They didn't just sign something. They cut it. So remember, the animals were cut. And who was put asleep? Abraham was. Who alone walked the blood path? Yahweh did. Now into the new covenant, which is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, Jesus alone walks the blood path. It's his shed blood alone that ratifies the covenant. No more animal sacrifices, no more rules and regulations that you must accomplish under the Mosaic law. You have the shed blood of Jesus. And so that's what we're celebrating. And so that's why he commands, do this. We're not to do a fast. We're to celebrate a supper. Because the new covenant community is one that's characterized by the joy of the supper, not the dour sulking of fasting. Anyway, that's the way I feel when I'm fasting. All right, now, why do we think Paul could say this in Colossians 2.16? Paul says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect of festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Could Paul say that if you and I were bound to the old covenant? And we had to keep Saturday Sabbath. No, he couldn't say that. Someone could judge us regarding that. What about saying that no one is to judge you in regard to food or drink? If you were commanded to fast under the new covenant, could he say that? No, because someone could say, hey, you're supposed to be fasting and you're not fasting. You're eating food when you're not supposed to be eating food. But notice Paul says, don't let anyone judge you with that. You want to eat? Eat. You don't want to eat? Don't eat. And by the way, as I say this, there are some here that say, I like to fast. Go ahead and fast. What you do with food is up to you. There's liberty under the new covenant. But I want you to think about the implications of this text. If we were still under any part of the Mosaic law, could Paul say these things? No. Brothers and sisters, we're called to the supper, the joy of the new covenant, not fasting. Now, what I want to leave you with is I want to show you what it's like to be part of the wedding party. The idea of the wedding party regarding Jesus Christ, the greatest groom coming for the greatest bride, the church, is inherent to the New Testament. In other words, the imagery is all over the place at Christ's first coming, during the church age, and the second coming. And the imagery is built off of the marriage between an Israelite man and an Israelite woman in Jesus' day. And so I want to show you how that played out in their culture and how it relates 
to the great joy that we have. First of all, in any good wedding, you have a bridegroom. Well, sure enough, Jesus is depicted as the bridegroom, the nymphos, today in Matthew 9.15. And you see it elsewhere. You see it in Ephesians 5.32. Any good wedding, of course, must have a bride. One woman, right? One man, one woman. Genesis 2.24. Well, notice here, the bride is the church. Called the bride elsewhere in Scripture, John 3.29, Revelation 22.17. Well, every wedding has a best man. That's John the Baptist, and he says that he's the best man in John 3.29. He says so. Now, in the wedding, in Jesus' day, what would happen is a young man wanted to marry a young woman. They would first agree to a mahar. That's the bride price. And so what would happen is the father of the groom and the father of the bride, they would come together and they would negotiate the bride price. What price had to be paid for the groom to purchase this bride? And oftentimes the price would rival that of a new home. Why? Because to the father of the bride, she was absolutely beyond measure worth so much. She was so precious to him. Think about how high of a price did God the Father have to pay to purchase us, the bride? It's Jesus Christ shed blood. That's what he paid. Now, what would happen is after the bride price was agreed to, they would share a cup of wine. And at the wine, what they would do is the, the groom would take the cup and he would drink it. He'd say, I take your life, I, I give you mine. And the same thing would apply to the bride. She would say, if she agreed, I take your life and I offer you mine. That's what they do. And then they were betrothed. And this betrothal was meant that they were officially married in Jewish law. But they had not yet come together physically for the consummation of the marriage. And so what would happen is at the betrothal, you would have Jesus, excuse me, Jesus is the greatest groom. You'd have the groom promise that he's going back to the father's house to prepare a place for his bride. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus does that very thing. Remember in John 14, 2 through 3, what does Jesus say? In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. Remember, he's going to receive us to himself. That's what the groom would do. The groom would promise that his wife was one day going to live in the Father's house. That's what Jesus did. Now, what's very interesting is it doesn't stop there, the imagery. When the groom was away at the father's house preparing a place for his bride, to console the bride while he was gone, he would send what? He would send gifts. Doesn't it say in Ephesians 4 that as the Son ascended, he sent gifts to men? The greatest gift that he gave was the Spirit. And what did the Spirit give? It says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers, and they give us what? The Word of God. So that us, the bride, can be edified, that we can be built up, that we can be without spot, spot or blemish when we're finally brought to the Father's house. And then finally, you would have, once the Son would come and bring the bride to the home, they would have a seven-day feast. And in this seven-day, I shouldn't say it was a feast, it was more of the bride and the groom, they would be in the marriage chamber. And that would be where the consummation of the marriage happened, and it was the best man's job to say that the consummation had occurred. Well, after those seven days, they would have the great feast called 
the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is exactly what you read about in Revelation chapter 19. Jesus returns with the bride, and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb with him on the earth in his new glorious kingdom. Brothers and sisters, every time you and I partake of the supper, as we're going to do today, we're really giving a foreshadowing of this great messianic banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The point to all of this is you can see why it's wholly unacceptable to be engaged in fasting, mourning, and sadness. Because you and I, through faith in Christ, are members of the wedding party. We belong to the greatest groom of all time, the mediator of the new and eternal covenant. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the promise that you have for us, that you're coming again, that you're bringing us to the great eschatological banquet. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that through the work of your Son, we have the forgiveness of sins and great joy in the glorious future of your kingdom. We thank you for these truths. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, today we have the honor of sharing the Lord's Supper. And as Steve rightly pointed out earlier, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we do invite you to share in the table. At Gospel of Grace, we have both the wafer and the cup. When you take the wafer and the cup, there's little waste paper baskets on the side of the table that you can throw your cup away. But what I'm going to do is read the words of institution, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, where Paul says this, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, there's two elements to the Lord's Supper. There's a remembrance. The people of God are often quick to forget the work of the Lord. Why did Joshua place 12 stones in the waters of the Jordan when they'd passed through miraculously in Joshua 4 so that the people of God would remember? Why do we do this in remembrance? The Lord's Supper isn't about the wine and the bread turning magically into Christ's body as the Roman Catholic Church claims. It's about remembering what Christ has done. But it's also about proclaiming his death until he comes. There's a future element that we really are heading to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Why? Because we're part of the wedding party. We belong to the great groom who's bringing this glorious marriage supper of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, this is a foreshadowing of it. Maybe next time we share it, will be with him. Jesus himself said that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drank it, drank it anew with us in the Father's kingdom. What cup was left over? The cup of consummation. Let's pray and thank God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the shed blood of your Son, that he really did shed his blood to bring about the new covenant, a new and eternal covenant in which we are made right forever through faith alone in Christ alone. We thank you for this. We thank you that we don't have to work for salvation because we couldn't do it, and the law showed it. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the great promises that still lie in the future, 
the resurrection, and the glories of your kingdom. And I pray, Heavenly Father, as we remember and proclaim these things today, that you'd help us to persevere until the day you come for us, the great groom for the bride. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.